Republican George Santos admits he made up major details of his resume and background following a New York Times investigation, but Santos is insisting he will not resign. To get down to the nit and gritty, I'm not a fraud. I'm not a, a criminal who defrauded the entire country and made up this fictional character and ran for Congress. I've been around a long time. I mean, a lot of people know me. They know who I am. They've done business dealings with me. Opposition research, the practice of digging up dirt on your political opponents, is often referred to as a dark art. The term evokes memories of dirty tricks and October surprises. Campaign veterans and political reporters fondly repeat favorite stories of candidates laid low by unearthed sound bites or long-buried scandal. But for all the cultivated mystique around the practice, it can seem sometimes like a lot of so-called oppo either falls flat or arrives too late. Last year, a little-known New York Republican named George Santos was elected to the House of Representatives. Almost immediately after his election, the New York Times reported that his resume was full of lies. And that article was merely the first in a series of increasingly ridiculous revelations, as more and more people who had interacted with Santos made accusations of fraud, theft, and often quite bizarre dishonesty. He claimed his family had fled the Holocaust and that his mother was a 9-11 survivor. As the stories pile up, people have asked how his Democratic opponent last November managed to whiff a race against such a flagrant liar. The election of George Santos raises the question of how opposition research actually works and whether it still works at all. I'm Laura Marsh. And I'm Alex Perrine. This is The Politics of Everything. George Santos's win in New York's 3rd District, traditionally a Republican stronghold, wasn't terribly close. He beat his Democratic opponent, Robert Zimmerman, by about eight percentage points. His win helped Republicans take control of the House of Representatives. And then the questions began. Now, less than two months into his term, 78% of his constituents want Santos out. TNR staff writer Daniel Strauss, who covers Capitol Hill, joins us to discuss how we got here. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So in the weeks immediately following the election, how did this George Santos story unfold? What were sort of the first revelations that suggested Santos was not entirely the person he'd been presenting himself as? He didn't work for marquee banking and financial groups in New York like Goldman Sachs. He carried himself as someone from a great deal of money who had expensive tastes and could back it up with personal wealth, such as going to Nantucket often, having sterling academic credentials, like mm -hmm. having graduated from the NYU Stern School of Business. But the New York Times found that there were small tells indicating that Santos did not actually have the wealth that he reported on federal documents that he did have. My favorite detail in this story was that he would say he went to the NYU Business School, but when an alumni would mention it in passing using the usual nomenclature for alumni, he wouldn't know what they were talking about. So not the best researched story, <laughs> just like broad strokes, it seems like. It does feel like the revelations have just been snowballing. It's almost never ending. You sort of wake up every morning and there's a new one. He has a lie involving 
uh, Spider-Man. Uh, can you fill us in on that one? <laughs> yeah, he he misrepresented himself as like a producer for a Broadway show of Spider-Man mm-hmm. to donors. I don't know why, and I don't know why you get into this situation. <laughs> and I actually don't know Broadway super well, but I do know that this particular show did not do very well anyway. No, it was a notorious flop. Spider-Man, turn off the dark. I mean... <laughs> It was such a uh, disaster of a show that falsely presenting yourself as a producer of it is a strange thing to do for a number of reasons. Yeah. I mean, it seems like he was trying to hit a lot of like big New York beats, right? Like Broadway, having all the clothes, going on the fancy vacations. Like he was sort of like approximating someone who would be a big deal, just kind of all over the place. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that Santos represented himself as sort of a too-good-to-be-true Republican. He said he was Jewish. He's uh, brown-skinned. Mm-hmm. He said he's gay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you are a low-information Republican voter, you're like, yeah, this sounds great. Let's, like, diversify the party a little bit more. And I think part of the reason that this story is persisting in the news and American news ecosystem is because, like, my favorite thing is that oftentimes a George Santos story would refer to him in a headline or on the deck as the talented Mr. Santos. It's a very Mm -hmm. familiar story to us right now and in general, not only because of the talented Mr. Ripley, and it seems like there are a lot of similarities there, but also Anna Delvey and sort of frauds in high places, Mm -hmm. which is an ongoing thread in the American discourse. And this one is amazing because the lies don't end. It's interesting because, as you said, these figures of the fraud or the con artist do loom very large in the culture right now, right? Like we've had like a million HBO, Netflix, Hulu, whatever miniseries dramatizing the lives of Anna Delvey and Elizabeth Holmes and the Crypto King and so on and so on. And yet we don't really seem to be very good at spotting these characters when a new one pops up. When the first Times piece came out about George Santos, a question a lot of people raised is, well, why didn't you report on this before the election when people were still figuring out who to vote for? Did anyone close to the campaign like have a sense that this guy might not be who he says he is? Yeah, and in the district, there was a strong sense that something didn't smell right about Santos. Mm-hmm. And the Umbrella Campaign Committee for House Republicans kept their distance from him. They refrained from pouring as much money as they could have into that race. Kevin McCarthy also, then the House Minority Leader, avoided campaigning in the district because Santos (laughs) just didn't fit right. I was able to get my hands on the opposition research book that Democrats had. And what that is, is that's a collection of negative information about a candidate that a campaign can use against them. And it is a long, long list for Santos. (laughs) But the explanation that you'll see from national and local reporters is that there just wasn't enough attention on this race. So that's sort of how he slipped through the cracks. There's kind of an interesting contradiction there almost, because since the election, Santos has become sort of the main character of American politics in a lot of ways. (laughs) But it's almost as if these stories were less relevant before he actually managed to get into Congress, right? So there were all of these threads that could have been pulled, and there was opposition research saying that 
a lot of his background doesn't really add up. You almost figure that there's one of the checks that is supposed to stop people like Santos from getting in is, is I don't know, embarrassment. This idea mm-hmm. that if you run for office, all of your dirty secrets will be uncovered. It seems like if you are just completely shameless, <laughs> like that might not matter enough for you. Yeah, and he had nothing to lose. I mean, he had been evicted multiple times. He really didn't have much money to his name. He didn't have the education that he wanted. So he's taken on this approach of go big or go home. And frankly, that's worked out for him until now. There's not much Republicans can do to force him out beyond where he is now. He has recused himself from the two committees he was appointed to, but he's still a vote in Congress. He's still walking around. I think this gets at some of the ways in which our system was upheld by norms that may not be as strong as they once were, because there's not a clear-cut way to be rid of Santos now that he is in office. Constitutionally, he's elected, he's sworn in, he's a member of Congress. There's nothing he's done that is disqualifying him from serving. And the thing that traditionally would have gotten rid of him is he just, I guess, would have been so shamed and embarrassed he would have resigned. And Mm -hmm. if you just decide not to, we're seeing the limits of what can actually be done beyond just continuing to report every new thing that comes up. Right. I think the sense I've gotten from some of my sources is that there is a strong expectation that he will be soundly defeated in the next election in 2024, regardless of the atmosphere elsewhere, because he has sort of branded himself in such a bad way. And polling shows that most of the district wants him out. Mm -hmm. So basically, the, the message here is that you can tell all manner of lies with no consequences, and get two years in office, which is not bad. Well, yeah, you get two years in office, but you may get extradited back to your country. And you may, <laughs> I mean, there's no, I can't think of any industry that would hire him again. He's facing multiple investigations, both from the American government and the Brazilian government. The only way out for him, I think, is for him to become one of those like C-list heroes of the right who really stuck it to the left by defying norms, I guess. It's sort of easy to imagine one future being possibly, possibly minimum security prison, and then another future being like the right-wing cruise circuit. (laughs) I will say, though, I will buy his book if he writes a book after this (laughs) and he charges $34.99 or whatever exorbitant price such a book would cost. I would read every page because it's such, again, it is such a weird, fascinating story. And it does make you ask, like, maybe I could have become a Navy SEAL if I had just lied my way through (laughs) everything. Yeah, I think that will be the best novel of 2024 if he manages to write a book like that. Certainly, yeah. It'll be called a really inventive debut by the reviewers, you know. (laughs) Daniel, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. After the break, we'll talk about the practice of opposition research in political campaigns and why Santos, as a candidate, slipped through the net. The Holes in George Santos's story raised a lot of questions, not just about the candidate himself. It also suggested there had been a failure on the part of his opponent and of the press to find out the truth. Why was the New York Times only reporting this story after the election, not during the campaign? Why hadn't his Democratic opponent dug out these facts about him and used them? 
There's a whole industry devoted to digging up exactly this kind of dirt in elections, and it's more complicated than it might seem. We're talking now with Tyson Brody, who's been an opposition researcher for more than 12 years, about how opposition research really works. Tyson, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So you've been an opposition researcher for Democrats for several years. Can you start by explaining what opera research is supposed to do? Yeah. So, you know, opposition research is just sort of looking into everything good and bad about a candidate. You look at your own candidate, too. The idea is you want the news to be as good about your candidate and as bad about the opponent Mm -hmm. as possible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you go through their personal history, their professional history, their political history, and you just want to see where are the holes, like Mm -hmm. where are the gaps or just where they just said something just like, oh, man, if I give this to a reporter, the, they're going to have a lot of fun with this. What kind of thing is seen as really significant? Because you could look through, you could comb through someone's past and find out, oh, you know, they have an unpaid parking ticket <laughs> and no one's going to care. It's not going to influence an election. When opposition research really works and when you find something really explosive, what kind of fact are we talking about? Part of the problem is, and I think this is actually very relevant to the George Santos situation, is that sort of the sexy part of opposition research is the investigative reporter aspect. You're digging through the files, you're connecting all these like financial assets or transactions and claims and proving that, you know, they've done misconduct or something like that. And a lot of times that simply doesn't pan out. It's just a lot of work. A lot of reporters family don't have the bandwidth to do it. You know, you've seen with Santos, right, that uh, there was just like not that much coverage because not many people were interested in the race until he won. Mm-hmm. The best kind of stuff has generally always been someone saying something dumb on camera. So this would be like, oh, someone was on a talk show 10 years before they even thought about running for office. and They made a comment that now seems really tinnied. And you're going to resurface that in the campaign. And having that video of that person saying something stupid is really powerful. But maybe having something from their tax returns that you have to explain that's kind of abstract has less of an impact. Yeah, it's just it's much easier to convey the information in something like that, right? You know, it's like they said something bad as opposed to, ah, he claimed the deduction that wasn't really there or something like that, or he's taken advantage of something that says he lives in a different state, et cetera, et cetera. And my impression is that it has to also sort of fit a story the campaign wants to tell, right? It can't just be any old thing. It has to sort of fit into what kind of story they want to tell about their opponent or or the race, right? Yeah, especially for things like a congressional or something like that. You already know what are the top testing messages against your opponent, Mm -hmm. you know, or what the ideal thing would be. So your mind is kind of directed there to like look for that, to find those patterns as opposed to create a a whole new path and do all the extra legwork and try to convince people that this is a thing. So if you were looking at a race where voters really care about abortion and January 6th, and then the research you have against someone is, oh, they own stocks in a company that has really bad labor practices. Like maybe that's not something you're even going to bother surfacing. You can pitch it. I mean, never hurts to pitch something, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's just like someone writes it up and what happens after that. Just take this for especially for listeners who have not been on either end of this exchange. How does the process by which opposition research become journalism? How does that work? Okay, so like, let's say you know, I, I've done my like work. I've put together a pitch document. A pitch document is just going to have like a short summary of what 
I think the story is, then point by point evidence with citations and links of all of like the claims you're making. And so you eat out to that reporter and after that, it's on the reporter side to be like, are they actually going to look into this? Do they think this is interesting? And then after that, you know, I'm just bugging you to be like, hey, how's it going? Is it anything else? Oh, I found out this extra thing. Maybe this will help. I think when people think about it, they think there's going to be this smoking gun. It's going to be like one example Alex and I discussed before the show is like, the Gary Hart presidential campaign where there's this photo of the candidate with a beautiful woman that's not his wife, and this will sink the candidacy of this person. And that doesn't happen very often. But I think people have this idea that there will be something very dramatic like that that could come out of opposition research. I mean, obviously, it's just much more entertaining and cool that way. (laughs) People will joke like, or like, oh, oh, opposition research looks like Nothing like it does in the movies, like with the reality of it. It's like, yeah, because it's actually quite boring. Like I'm just reading through a bunch of Nexus transcripts or going to look at microfiche or something like that. Or maybe on hour 12 of some like horrible YouTube playlist I have set up to like hopefully catch someone saying something dumb. Right. I want to ask how this business has changed, because with a candidate like Trump, you have so much material potentially to use and say, look at the stuff he did that was bad, right? There isn't just one gotcha moment. There's a huge array of them. Does that complicate things? Because there's just so much bad stuff out there that it almost seems like it stops mattering. Yeah, the story I tell about Trump is, you know, we could spend weeks working on what I would consider a very good hit. But like getting anyone to write about it's tough because every day he would just go on the news and say something to the equivalent of it. Like it should be illegal to be Mexican or something like that. (laughs) And like, you know, that's all people are going to talk about. And that's what they should probably talk about. It's more interesting than like him doing like financial misconduct. Let's talk about the Santos campaign a bit more, because there was opposition research, but it didn't surface. So what do you think happened there? I think what happened is, you know, they put together what they thought were the top hits. Some of them were good. Some of them were things like they got a lot of them saying some nutty stuff and supporting like things like abortion bans. I think they said they paid the legal bills for like January 6th rioters and things like that. And they, they even got some of the other like investigative things that the charity was fake, Mm -hmm. was never registered, the dog rescue. But I think as to what happened then, it's out there. I don't know if they were pitching it a lot. It just probably wasn't that interesting to people. And frankly, it was probably hard to get people to care about George Santos. Like, even if you're like a member of the press that lives in that district, his potential constituents are the people that read your paper. It just like wasn't, I think, as sexy as a story of things that were going on. And that's like a, a hard thing to deal with. I think people just didn't think that Republicans were going to do as well in New York, let alone like run the table in Long Island. The reason the New York Times looks into him is he's only interesting because he won, right? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he was just going to be some gadfly like who had just lost by 12 points the year before. Tyson, thank you so much for talking to us today. Hey, thanks for having me. I hope it was helpful. You can read Tyson Brody's op-ed, George Santos and How Opposition Research Really Works, in the New York Times. After the break, we'll discuss whether Donald Trump, who famously said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it, has permanently altered, at least for Republicans, the power of oppo. 
More than 10,000 people have served in Congress since the founding of the Republic, and we'd be naive to assume George Santos is the only liar among them. We're certainly living in a time where serial fabulism seems to pay off, at least for a while. TNR's deputy editor Jason Lincolns posed the question recently in his power-mad newsletter. Where would an inveterate liar and con man be most welcomed in politics? The clear answer, he says, is the Republican Party. Jason, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. So we've established that a lot of people actually knew at least a little bit about Santos before the whole story went national, so to speak. His Democratic opponent's campaign knew there were inconsistencies in his background, but essentially said they didn't have enough money to do more research. Republicans knew. Some doubled down on his candidacy anyway. And only one media outlet, the North Shore Ledger, actually reported on those inconsistencies. Santos, of course, won his election by 142,000 votes. So what do you think Santos was thinking? I mean, do you think he thought he would get away with this or what? Yeah, I mean, I think that the guy is at least on some level somewhat pathological. His lies are such a wilderness of oddities. I mean, he lies about strange things. Like, he was a star volleyball player at Baruch College. Right. Which is so specific. You really have to, at some point, decide, you know, I'm going for it. I was a star volleyball yeah. player Baruch College. You're right. It's not like he was carefully crafting a backstory. It's kind of like he was just kind of seizing on things as they came to him. <laughs> yeah, I remember movie critic Joe Queenan once had a joke about being in a restaurant in like Shaker Heights or somewhere. And the waitress told him that the restaurant served the best tiramisu in Shaker Heights. And Queenan <laughs> said, you may as well just say you serve the best tiramisu in Ohio because I'm not going to check. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of think that this sort of like weird tiramisu phenomenon is what happened in this district. Right. This whole situation has raised a number of questions about the two parties and how they each approach opposition research and how effective having really good oppo on someone can even be, right? Because all the stuff has come out about Santos. He's still in office. His party has not really, the National Party at least, has not called for him to step down or try to discipline him really in any way. So one question is, how much does it even matter if you have all these lies in your past and you are a serial fabulist, if you're a Republican? Well, the obvious thing to say about that is that, you know, Donald Trump was a sort of similar gish gallop of obviously disqualifying things uh, <laughs> and lies, and it didn't impede him in any way, shape or form in the way that gaffes and gotchas used to, you know, I Donald Trump kind of like destroyed the gaff. You know, yeah. remember, mm -hmm. it used to be that you could say something stupid and it'd get four days of news coverage of it and maybe even damage to a certain extent your hopes. Trump in a lot of ways rewired our brains. And a question I have is whether there's now an asymmetry in politics where opera research can't hurt Republicans, but it can hurt Democrats. And an example that comes to mind, also a New York race, though in this case actually just a state Senate race, was the enormous amount of oppo research that came out against Julia Salazar when she was running with some similar kind of echoes of the Santos story. You know, she said that she had Jewish heritage, which I don't know. I don't know why people keep claiming this. They think that they're going to resonate with voters in New York more if they say that they're Jewish somehow. But she was really hammered in the press for all this stuff that came out about her. And, you know, the press raked through details of like babysitting gigs that she'd had as a teenager. 
I think there is an asymmetry. I think the Democrats are hamstrung by the fact that they can never appear to be a cynical party. That the Republicans are so obviously cynical about things, they don't really promote policies anymore. They're largely not trying to be productive in the traditional sense. One of the things I talk about in the piece I wrote on this matter, the reason I think Santos is a model Republican is that Republicans, for as long as I can remember, have essentially been running like scams on their own base. Right. They ran direct mail schemes. They hooked their base on penny stock scams and miracle cures. They're still doing that today. The problem, the Democrats have like, unfortunately, for better or for worse, decided they're going to be the party of like slightly higher standards. And, you know, it's sometimes an albatross around their neck. You know, during the 2020 campaign, Democrats had to be the party of COVID responsibility. So they mm-hmm. weren't out campaigning in places where they traditionally campaigned, but they traditionally had people knocking on doors. So sometimes you pay the price to be the non-cynical party. I don't know how we ever equalize that. You know, the Republicans spend a lot of money. And it seems like there's an extra element here too, because not only does some of the dirt that comes out about these candidates not harm Republicans, you could even argue it's helped them. So you ran a piece by Alex Shepard, which argued that the whole circus around George Santos has actually benefited Republicans. How does that work? If George Santos had not become a thing, then probably the headlines in the early part of the new GOP House majorities era would have been about the fair tax proposal (laughs) that they put forward, which essentially is a super regressive form of taxation that hamstrings working class and middle class people. It's a crazy idea. And it's the kind of thing that if you were a Democrat, you would probably want to immediately make the face of the new majority. But instead, what was happening was George Santos was in the headlines at all times. It's funny that you say it sort of takes the heat off Republicans for their actual terrible agenda, because I think to some extent, I don't want to blame the Zimmerman campaign too much here because New York had a a bad cycle for Democrats for a lot of reasons. But I think to some extent they were trying to figure out how to go after Santos for like being a Republican, right? Like here are the sort of unpopular policy positions that he holds and like in doing so miss the actual sort of Santos story. And then you then that sort of happens writ large with the entire new Republican House majority where there's no attention paid to their insane policy agenda because it's all of his attention being paid to you know, the nuttiest nut in the caucus. (laughs) He's obviously a very outlandish figure, and that's why this has been such a big story. But I wonder if you think there is a kind of Rubicon being crossed here, as in, like, this shows how much you can get away with. Like, I think we saw with the Access Hollywood tape before the 2016 election, oh, like, you can have this awful video of you come out and still become their president. Do you think this is a continuation of that trend or is this just a blip? I think that if we've not crossed the Rubicon, we've certainly neared it. And, you know, this is also kind of a story of institutional gatekeepers. Like, why ultimately did Trump become president after the Access Hollywood tape became something in clear, full view of everyone? It's because the people who made the rules about who was and who was not a Republican said it was okay. I think that there have been, with George Santos, because he's such a marginal figure and he's a humiliating figure in a lot of ways, you do see some Republicans, you know, say he's got to go, but it's McCarthy's caucus. McCarthy wants him to stay, so he stays. And I believe you already kind of see the fact that he's staying, giving him a little bit more legitimacy than he had when this started. 
his career may come to a very quick end as soon as voters have the chance to do something about him. But for the time being, I think that Santos has gotten away with it. And he's going to have an opportunity now to do legitimate congressman things. And that could potentially save him in the end. Thanks so much for talking with us, Jason. Yeah, sure thing. Read Jason Lincoln's article, George Santos is a Model Republican, on NewRepublic.com. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Lorraine Kadamatori assisted on this episode. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and you want to support us, one thing you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Thanks for listening.